Brian, are, are you okay? Oh, man. I feel like I've been dragged through five miles of bad road. But I'm holding up, buddy. I'm holding up. In fact, I'm quite pleased right now. Oh, yeah? Why is that? Well, because we're finally caught up. I mean, despite all the staple madness and the Oscars, Digital Noise is totally caught up on its titles, and I in no way feel like I'm drowning. All right, what's next on our slate? South by. Shit. Beer? Please. Avatars of Movie Avarice. This is Digital Noise, episode 34. I am the host of Hilarity, the king of comedy, the sultan of self-delusion, Christopher Lawrence Cox. And with me is the man who has gone now, successfully, 432 days without killing a mutant just for the sake of it. Let's give him a round of applause and his 432 no-mutant chip, Brian Salisbury. <laughs> that is quite an accomplishment. And as is being Rupert Pupkin, I didn't know I was in the presence of greatness, but you are apparently the king of comedy. Well, you know, like I said, and the sultan of self delusion so <laughs> <laughs> nice well done hey everybody i still sound like shit that's okay i'll i'll take it from here mr salisbury thanks buddy like i said welcome to episode 34 of digital noise we 34. are four jesus we, we are we are older than jesus now wow he only made it to 33 and we haven't even gotten started on our prophecies yet nope you know, aside from that whole, we'll probably die alone. Well, but we're never out of wine, which is nice. That is true. And really, that's a miracle in and of itself. True story. <laughs> it's only because I live next door to a liquor store. True. But a great part of town, for the record. Wonderful part of town. <laughs> we have lots of uh, titles to cover for you today, all sorts of stuff. But there, uh, before we get started with that, let me just go through a couple things with you. First off... Uh, when you go on our site, there's a lot of ways you can help us out and help this site keep running. One of which is, of course, our Amazon links. You'll see links to all the titles uh, that we're talking about today. If you click on any of those links and you buy that product through Amazon, we actually do get a little bit of a kickback. But that's not all. Nope. If, in fact, you click on one of those links and, and decide, I don't want that title and just keep surfing on Amazon from there. If you buy anything else, if you started from one of our links, we get a kickback from whatever item that is you buy later. Very much appreciated. There are also lots of other ways you can help. Of course, we have t-shirts for sales. You can get a subscription, which is a really, really nice way to help us out. We're going to have actual tiers for that soon where you never know. You might already qualify for some free benefits. I can promise you that after South By, there are going to be some pretty kick-ass benefits for being a subscriber, and we're not going to forget those who have been a subscriber without any kind of incentive thus far. Like, those people are the absolute troopers, and we're definitely going to uh, to reward you for that. But after South By, there's going to be incentives for everybody who's a subscriber. And as Steve Allen said, while your parents are asleep, go into their room into your daddy's pants and take out his wallet and take out those green pieces of paper with the president's faces on it and send it to us, and we'll send you a balloon that says sucker on it. Yes. <laughs> Yes, that's exactly. We're advocating theft. No, because, we're not. No, no, no. We are because we we need the money. We need the money. Okay, we are advocating that. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Of course, if you find any pieces of paper in there with President Obama's face on it, it's not actually money, for the record. No. Yeah. No, not at all. If you were dumb enough to fall for that, you probably don't know who those other presidents are. So. <laughs> True story. Uh, lots of, but like I said, lots of things you could do to help us out. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, but you know what? I think I've spent enough time blathering about... Uh, you know, our in 
are on rushing poverty. You know what? You're you're doing the housekeeping stuff. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, you know what? But I believe that you've got the appropriate intro for... Oh, yes. It's time to reach out to the Intersphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call... The Letter got mail yes actually torgo i think this week i'm the uh questionable coffer yeah yes you are (laughs) i've got some kind of crud coming on that i'm really trying to share i'm sitting here chugging instead of my traditional uh brew that i have while we do this show i'm chugging emergency well you know what are you gonna do does it make you feel any better that i dropped about eight grams of black tar heroin into it before i served it i actually do because i was just sitting here thinking the one thing about emergency that really bothers me is it does not get me drunk yeah well this won't either (laughs) (laughs) uh you know you know we had to sort through a lot of interesting questions this week but ultimately our man Brian Salisbury narrowed it down to two, as he does every week. Thank you so much for that. Eh, I do what I can. Uh, And this week, our first question comes from Jose Rivera, who says, What would be your dream film to see Shout or Scream Factory take a stab at on Blu-ray with extra special features and a painted cover? That's actually a really great question, and I know that because I picked it. Uh, (laughs) Can you believe we're not actually getting paid by those guys? Yeah, we sound like we're on that, but it's like, you know what? You walk that fine line between, like, fandom and at some point just corporate shill, and I feel like we're corporate fans now. We're not quite shills. They are not actually taking any extra steps to try and make us support them more. They just keep putting out so many great titles, and as fans of home releases, they and Criterion are, you know, pretty much the two best out there for my money, so. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, my answer to this question, I have one that I really hope that they get the rights to, and and I hope that somebody tells me, oh yeah, they've already announced this and you just missed it, because that'd be great. But it's Alone in the Dark, which is this early 80s bizarre twist on the slasher film in which the slashers are all geriatrics. They're all these these uh, these old guys that were in a mental asylum who... Uh, but, by the way, an asylum run by Donald Pleasance in a strange twist of so Halloween. What could possibly go wrong What there? could possibly go wrong? Uh, but, yeah, so they they escape, and the, the group is like Jack Palance and Walter Matthau and uh, the the giant dude from uh, from The Running Man with all the lights. Really? Yeah, he's one of them. And then there's a fourth one who, who I won't say who he is because it's it's kind of a surprise. But, yeah, so in the movie you've got Jack Palance, you've got Donald Pleasance, you've got Martin Landau. Uh, and and the, so you have this quartet. Uh, I mean, uh, Pleasance isn't one of the serial killers. He's one of the – he's the hospital administrator. But they get out and they become convinced that the new doctor – murdered the old doctor so they're going to get revenge because they're they're delusional so they they loved their old doctor he moved on he got a new job the new doctor that comes in they become convinced murdered him so they go to his house to like get revenge on his family that sounds awesome it's a really great film it's directed by jack shoulder who also did the hidden which is another fantastic movie yeah aliens who possess humans and love like fast cars like lamborghinis and heavy metal music come on that's like, that writes itself. Yeah, and the second movie I would like them to cover, or they would like them to release, is The Hidden by Jack Shoulder. Oh, uh, right. This is just the Jack Shoulder, like, this is probably more than Jack Shoulder's been mentioned since the release of Nightmare on Elm Street 2. <laughs> Somewhere, he's just woken up out of bed, his ears on fire, something has changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a strange pat on the back for Shoulder, or pat on the shoulder for, I don't know, anyway. The point being, I hope Shout Factory gets a hold of his his catalog and is able to put them out with a lot of great new features. I would love to see some behind-the-scenes stuff on Alone in the Dark, working with all those great actors, and uh, absolutely want to see Kyle Kyle Cavanaugh. Is that his name? I don't the, know. The guy from uh, Twin Peaks. 
Oh, Kyle uh, McLaughlin. McLaughlin. Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah. yeah, I would love to see some stuff with him uh, talking about the hidden. So, uh, yeah, and you know, a special edition of Nightmare. You know, a rainbow edition of Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two, perhaps. <laughs> You know, it's funny, I've, met, I've mentioned, obviously you guys probably know by now that I'm a big Asian movie fa- uh, fan, and a lot of my favorite movies from the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, have still not really gotten a release outside of the, you know, the import version with the English subtitles that are horrible English. and just really terrible DVD transfers, and there's some of these are just absolute classics, and quite frankly, I could give you a list, but one of the ones I keep coming back to just wishing they would just like get a really nice cleaned up beautiful version of with decent subtitles or all three of the Chinese ghost story trilogy films Ah. which I love to death and I imagine and you know it's one of those films that are really really loved in Hong Kong there's been a remake there's an anime version of it Uh, the main star of it uh, Leslie I'm forgetting his name right now Leslie Chung I think it is uh, has gone, you know, went on to a lot of bigger things until sadly he actually died, took his own life, uh, not just not too many years ago. Wow. Uh, he was, it came out as a gay actor and it kind of, I, I don't know if it killed his career so much as like he just got tired of all the harassment, sure. what have you. Yeah. But, um, this was a, one of the early Chewy Hark films and one of the best ones. Same guy did, uh, 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 the Young Detective D film that we talked about recently, as well as Once Upon a Time in China films. Such a great series, and they're all... I mean, these are the films that are like... They're almost companion pieces to Evil De- the Evil Dead, really, in their own sort of way, and then Evil Dead 2. They're this sort of mix of comedy and horror with very Raimi-esque uh, shooting style to it, and just so absurd horror. There's a sequence with a... Uh, uh, demon that's coming after these two guys and you have to do certain motions and symbols to make him either freeze like paralyze or start again the problem is these guys aren't clear on what the exact motions are <laughs> <laughs> and so it's this total three stooges number with which is you know can't get much more ramey than that with this monster such a great series i would love to see a beautiful new release of these on shout factory with a you know really cool painted cover as you suggested jose and a host of new extras totally well, our next question comes from Leroy Augustus Mack III, who said, and this is definitely one of the more... Actually, I think his full name is Leroy Augustus Mack, part three, the Dream Warriors. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, he, he has one of the more elaborate questions that we actually had to do. You, know, you can't answer off the top of your head. <laughs> we had to do research for. Yeah. They said, if you had to describe yourself to a stranger using just five films, what would they be? Such a, like... Jungian question, the kind of thing you should be laying on a couch in a psychologist's office to get asked. And then you should say, what? Fuck this and leave. Yes. <laughs> yes, it did. As a psych major, I can tell you it's bullshit. <laughs> it's the movie critic fan version of Ink Blops. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, so for this cinematic Rorschach, I have chosen, uh, first would be Goodfellas for a couple of reasons. One is I love mafia movies, I love mafia culture, and I'd like to think I'm a good fella. And, I, and that's kind of part of the, uh, I mean, it's not necessarily something we thought about when we picked the name for the site, but it does kind of factor into that. Like, you know, he's one of us. He's a good fella. Like, that's exactly how Ray Liotta described, like, explains the title of the movie. So it's like he's one of us. He's a good fella. So Plus, we have a lot of bodies and drunks. We do. We yeah, do. It's, all it's over a bit th- of work to get a website started, I'm just saying. There are abandoned cars all over Austin that you should not look in the trunk of. Yeah. Um, of course, Escape from New York, I think, should be on there because I love post-apocalyptic films and... My fucking online nickname is Steak Pliskin, so come on. And then Drinking Buddies. Now, you got to keep in mind, this is not a list of favorite films. This is a list of films that describe you. 
and I'm I'm pretty much everybody's drinking buddy. There are very few times that you will ever call me and say, "Hey, I really need to have a beer right now. Are are you busy?" And that I'll that I'll say that I'm busy, even if I am, because I don't know. I like to hang out and and drink with people. I feel like you learn a lot about people when you share a drink with them. So, and then finally, or no, actually, the fourth one would be the Invisible Man, which is not only my favorite Universal monster film, but I work such long hours sometimes that you won't see me for extended periods of time. I am the invisible man. Wow. And finally, the movie Frantic. And I refer you back to the fourth one. <laughs> oh, fair enough. <laughs> uh, well, I went through, I guess I went through a little bit different angle on, on these. Um, I, I started off with Man of La Mancha, uh, the film, of course, about Don Quixote, because this really had a lot to do with as I was growing up, my belief that imagination was the most powerful thing there was, as well as getting a real feeling for the importance of the nobility of man and sacrifice. Uh, this was a film that like these things continue to affect me to this day as being very much part of the basic core structure of what affects me the most. I mean, you ever see me crying in a movie that's not the sort of normal movie you cry at. It's probably because it has something to do with somebody being ridiculously noble. Uh, the next one is repo man. Uh, I was a, a little punk and it had a no. lot, it had a lot to do with uh, dis- being very, just being dissatisfied with the status quo the deuce you say the 80s punks who were just like you know what there is no good answer so i'm just gonna be angry and for a long time i really felt that way and i still think there's a big part of me that does but at the same time you that imagination part of you can't help but wonder if somewhere underneath all this bland reality there's some underlying reality that has aliens in it or something like that (laughs) (laughs) wait was that what the punk movie was about yeah maybe there are aliens have you never watched repo man no i have but like just like the entire punk movement is just people desperately hoping that there are secretly aliens well, among uh, us. Well, being a punk was definitely an escapist position, no question at all. I just, my take on it was a little bit differently and resembled more what happened in the plot of Repo Man. <laughs> uh, next You're one, the dorkiest punk I could possibly imagine. This is very true. Uh, the next one is The Lord of the Rings. For one thing, it really represents to me in my head uh, my relationship with my father. That was our bonding thing that we came together on all the time, was talking about that, talking about the these characters and what happened and what it stood for. And, and really, ultimately, that for me is the old ultimate film representing the hero's journey, the Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, that certainly makes up the core of about a billion other things that I love. And I must admit, to the degree that I've studied it, I even sort of have to fight myself from looking at basic human psychology sometime and and people's reasons for doing things as couched within (laughs) that structure. Which isn't always helpful. The next one is a little more obvious. The Big Lebowski. Let's face it. Most days I'd rather just stay in my pajamas and drink white Russians or Caucasians. Fuck yeah. <laughs> you know, I get, I'm sorry. I, he's like a dream, like slacker character, like the slacker inside of me that was like, you know what? If I could get away with just being that guy. But the truth is there probably would be some kind of murder mystery or kidnapping or something like that that I'd get drawn into. And I would be highly irritated the entire time. <laughs> the last one is Son of Ram. Which, of course, comes back sort of to everything else in a way, which is that, you know, that story about these children who are acting out this elaborate fantasy uh, that has dark moments, it has suspicion and betrayal and all these things, but still is based in all the entertainment they've absorbed. That was me as a kid to some degree. (laughs) And in many ways, I feel like that's still me and my friends today, uh, iconicizing films to a potentially unhealthy degree. (laughs) That should be our slogan. (laughs) That's our new slogan, iconicizing films. Iconicizing films to a potentially unhealthy degree. Mm, Indeed. Digital noise. Well, thank you very much, Tor. 
Sorgo. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you very much, me, for this edition of The Letterbox. And the people who actually sent the questions. <laughs> but now that that's over, insert music that doesn't exist here for it being over, it's time for us to get to The Reviews. Now, we don't have the most crowded week in the world, which I'm sure some of you who've been listening to our last two-hour podcasts will be grateful for. Uh, a little bit shorter, but we do have some solid titles to talk about. Uh, but I'm going to let Brian take it from here, since his job is the one to decide about what gets talked about and when. Nebraska comes up first on the review wheel this week. Only place ever Nebraska has come up first. <laughs> Buzzing. It's like we planned it that way. Well, uh, Nebraska is, uh, you know, this this dramedy that came out last year that was up for, if you guys watched the Oscars last weekend, was up for uh, quite a few awards, not not the least of which being uh, a Best Actor nomination for Bruce Dern, who is, man, Bruce Dern, if you guys, if this is the first time you've ever seen Bruce Dern in anything, I highly recommend that you go back and look at his catalog. One film I'll recommend to you just off the top of my head is The Driver which is an old Walter Hill film in which he's kind of playing the, the antagonist. And that was that's what he was really known for, was playing sort of these these classic movie villains. So definitely go back and look. But in Nebraska, he plays, uh, well, as, as he is at this point in his life, an older gentleman <laughs> yeah. who uh, has become convinced that he has won the lottery in Nebraska because he receives one of those letters that, you know, they send to old people. It's a big fucking scam. But, Wait a minute, I'm getting those letters. Yep. Uh, so he decides to walk from his home in Billings, Montana to Nebraska to get, to, to basically claim this million dollars that it says that he has won. So his son is doing everything he can to be like, dad, just stop. This is ridiculous. Like literally has to go out on the highway and stop him from walking to Nebraska a couple times. And then he realizes, you know what? The only way he's going to figure out that this is a scam is if we actually go there. So he, it becomes a road trip movie. It's about this sort of estranged father-son relationship that is is you know the son is working desperately to to mend fences as they're going on this trip together but it's it's clear throughout the movie that bruce turns character isn't all there yes this is an alexander payne movie by the way and a little bit different than your average alexander payne although still most of his films deal to some level or another with a family estrangement and healing over old wounds type of things uh and it's an if I have a uh, bone to pick with this, it's only that I thought that there was absolutely no reason to shoot this in black and white. In fact, I thought it was a, it it kind of took it away from it a little bit. There's some films that deserve yeah. to be shot in black and white. Nebraska, the whole time felt like, well, this isn't this is not the type of cinematography that lends itself to to being sharper or more impressive by the nature of black and white. I mean, maybe not sharper, but honestly, I thought it tied in really nicely to some of the themes of the movie, some of the idea. Well, first of all. If you live in either Montana or Nebraska, everything is kind of drab. Everything is kind of, you know, colorless. And, and, and not only that, but you, you, it's expounded by the fact that you have an old man who is slowly s slipping into dementia and his world is becoming more and more devoid of color, which represents joy. I mean, he's becoming a really joyless individual and it's, it's, it's really sad. And I felt like the reason they chose to go, you know, at first I was like, oh, that's kind of a, you know, hoity-toity artistic choice to go with black and white. And then I started watching and I was like, you know, I think it really does kind of tie into not only the setting, but the way that particularly the the protagonist of the movie is starting to view his world and how the light is kind of dying out from from his worldview. I mean, they talk all throughout the movie about the man that he used to be. Well, that's the big mystery of the film. But yeah. come on, Brian, even when they go to Oz, they don't go to color. Come on, that's messed up. <laughs> well, you know that's supposed to change. 
But yeah, the mystery, let me point out as well, Will Forte has a strange turn into drama here, playing the son. Of course, Will Forte, best known for Saturday Night Live and various different- MacGruber! Yeah, comedic roles, certainly not known for this, you know, an Alexander Payne type part, much more dramatic. And this is, while there are moments of, of lightheartedness here, it is definitely a dramatic role. Uh, also nominated for Best Actress in here was June Squibb, who I didn't really know anything about, but you'll never forget her no. after you see her in this movie. She is a cranky old hysterical lady who is the the mother of Will Forte, the wife of uh, Bruce Dern's character, Woody, and she is just a riot. I feel like she's, she's the screen. Michael Shannon of the movie. Yeah, she kind of is. She's the person that at some point has to just lay everything out of the table and go, look, you're all fucking idiots and here's why. But, you know, this is one of those films that actually gre- was greeted to a mixed reaction. And part of it, I suspect, is because... It doesn't provide really any answers. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. The real mystery of the film is, who is Woody Grant? And the film presents everything to, he's one of the most selfless, giving humanitarians you're ever going to meet, who refuses to take any credit for anything he does, but he's naive in the way that he lets people take advantage of him, to him being a complete... uh almost amnesiac manipulator in former times who abused everyone he was ever friends with and took advantage of him. No answer is given to which one of these things are true. You ultimately have to decide for yourself which one is true of this. But at the same time, it comes to a conclusion that deals with his extended family in Nebraska and you know, just the, the birthplace he came from where you can see that how either one of these things could be true and yet how still inappropriate it is the way that everybody treats him up there when they see him again and maybe even suspect that perhaps he is about to become a millionaire. Yeah. I, I think what I like most about the movie is how like the everything about the title, everything about kind of the theme of the movie ties together in such a way that Nebraska is one of those states that is so innocuous as to be readily overlooked. People don't, I mean, you know, people from other countries as they're listing the the names of the state or people in this country, even listing the names of the states they can remember, they're going to forget Nebraska yeah, because it's a forgettable state. Well, I mean, when they said he was, you, you were talking about, he's walking from Montana. I'm like, how far is that? Yeah. I don't even begin to know. <laughs> and, that, and I think that ties into who ultimately what he is, is he's a guy who is desperately afraid of being utterly forgotten. Yeah. He's a guy whose life, didn't have a lot of meaning to it. Like, I think that's why the, I won't say what happens at the end, but there's something in the ending that seems so small and so simple. But when you think about, you know, the fact that he's struggling throughout the whole movie, not just with dementia, but struggling with the idea that nothing in his life really made any difference. He didn't have anything to make his life special. There's this little tiny moment at the end that to anybody else would seem like such a small thing, but really was, I found very moving. I also like to, just the fact that this is not a father-son bonding film, yet it is at the same time. Yeah. Um, because Dern's not capable completely of understanding what's happening. Here. Right. We're really kind of seeing the underlying meaning of what's happening through Will Forte. Will, Will Forte? Forte. Forte. I want to say Fort. Nope. <laughs> Will Getting names right is not your forte it or is your not. fort. It is not. Uh, Will Forte's eyes, we're seeing that through his eyes, and he himself <laughs> is becoming more mature and growing as a person and getting a better just sort of understanding and lack of fear of aging as he goes along, sort of like coming to terms with this horrible position that his father is in and, you know, coming to terms with, it doesn't matter who my father was. What matters is that he's still just another human being. Yeah. And he deserves to be treated with respect for that. Interesting turns here by Bob Odenkirk and Stacy Keach, who plays a real douche. Wow. Stacy <laughs> Keach is an asshole in this movie. Yeah. Well, and in real life from what I hear, but really? Yeah. I've always oh, said that's so upsetting. 
Yeah, he's addicted to coke for a long time. I really so. like Stacy Keach. That's upsetting to hear. Yeah, but, but maybe it's wrong. Maybe he's not now. I don't know. Um, but I, I thought this was a good movie. I didn't think it was a great movie. I thought it had a little bit. You know, it acts as if it's more. It's filmed as if it's more uh, ambient and and cinematography oriented than it really is. And maybe that's just, like I said, the fault of, in fact, the cinematographer. I have no idea. But I found it just going, okay, let's get to the next part that has meaning here. Um, but I, and I'm a big Alexander Payne fan. I thought The Descendants was fantastic, his last movie, for sure. But this is still a decent movie. I can see why someone would love this. I just liked it myself. Unfortunately, the the extra feature, uh, which one, <laughs> the one extra feature on here, the making of Nebraska, which is apparently not bad. It's about thirty minutes long, but it has, as someone else wrote, has future special edition written all over it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I like this movie a little bit more than you did. I'm not. I'm also not ready to say that I'm in love with it, but. Uh... But we're, we're courting, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I liked it as a character piece. I liked, ultimately, kind of the way that it dealt with... Because my, my parents are from a town that was no bigger than, you know, the one they end up going to the like on the, on the way down, like their stop, uh, their hometown. And, and I kind of completely identify with that fear that you'll end up, you know, coming and going and, and not leaving any kind of mark on the planet. And, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that about it. I... I don't know. It's 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 very it's very bittersweet. But uh, I I keep thinking about the black and white thing. Like even if they shot this in color, it's Nebraska. Like it's the actual state of Nebraska. How much color would you it, possibly? Nebraska see? actually is in black and white. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Like, like, they didn't shoot it this way. It's how the state is. <laughs> <laughs> For show. Well, that was Nebraska, and now we're going to leave that state and move on to Muscle Shoals, which is not a state, but not it's, a state, but it is a place. <laughs> to be sure. <laughs> Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Sorry. Yeah, we're giving you the world tour of the least sounding interesting places to go. But hold on. Muscle Shoals, Alabama actually is, in fact, pretty fucking fascinating place. It is arguably the birthplace of rock and roll quite frankly, which is interesting. I had never even heard of this. And I read about rock music all the time. But uh, if you believe the people on this documentary, including Bono, Jimmy Cliff, Aretha Franklin, uh, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Alicia Keys, uh, J Percy Sledge, Steve Winwood, this huge list of rock stars, then who all are like, no, you don't understand. This place is like the best place to record rock and roll in the entire world. Tiny little studio in the middle of Alabama. And this documentary is, in fact, the story of it, um, of following, uh, largely following uh, th this one guy, Rick Hall, who is a really famous record producer, songwriter, music, uh, music publisher, and musician who operates fame studios there. And his group of musicians, uh, who up until a certain point were the house musicians there and then went on and formed their own music studio for a while called the Swampers, because it was swampy there, <laughs> who ended up being the, this band of all white, pretty much rednecks, ended up being the backing group for most of the most famous like soul and R&B hits coming out of the 60s <laughs> where you're like, what? There's a really uh, funny bit with, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, I think it's Clarence Carter. I, I care. One of the, the famous musicians of the time who, who showed up after hearing how big this place was and uh, saw they couldn't believe these guys were white. And he's like about ready to leave. And they're like, come on, just jam with us. And by the, like the end of the first day, they were all friends for the rest of their life. Nice. <laughs> you know uh, that, that uh, when a man loves a woman, 
recorded right there. Really? Like everyone on that but the singer, white. Huh. <laughs> yeah, it's w- weird. But ultimately, this and this is going on right during the time when, like, you know, uh, there's all over Alabama, they're trying to keep segregation and all this sort of thing. It's a very, very racist area. And yet this one little town was this dividing point where black and white people were bonding together and working equally together over rock and roll and the blues. Huh. Now, it tries to not bang at you over the head with that sort of thing, the documentary. I mean, you can't help but be reminded of it. there's things where it plays directly into the story here, but it's not trying to be a political film. It's trying to be a film about rock and roll and watching all these incredibly important things come out of the evolution of just this recording studio itself. Even the modern use of the slide with rock guitar evolved out of Muscle Shoals with Dwayne Allman figuring out like, hey, wow, I saw that guy Taj Mahal do that. Let me try this with rock and roll and developing his own style. Dwayne Dwayne Allman at one point being one of the house musicians at Muscle Shoals. Uh, It's... I'm not going to put this on the same level as 20 uh, 20 feet from stardom, which I thought was, you know, I mean, a deserving of an Oscar win, a phenomenal movie that has a big emotional range to it. This doesn't really have much of an emotional range, but it is a fascinating movie about a place that in and of itself feels like it has a touch of magic to it. Even going so far as to go back to ancient Indian legends about the place where apparently the tribe that lived there at one point. Uh, believed that the there was a ghost of, of an Indian woman in the river who sang all the time and brought music into their souls and brought them good luck. Uh, and when they were forced to basically, you know, move on to another place by the, the evil white man. Yeah, they were asked politely to leave. No, <laughs> they were forced out. They, I forgot their name. Something about their name changed and they became known as the sad people because they thought that music was gone for their souls without the whole help of this guiding spirit. But of course, ironically... You know, the spirit apparently doesn't care about the color of the skin because she was there for white, black, whoever, because that is definitely the Tennessee River, right where the Muscle Shoals sits right on is one hell of a music town, despite the fact it's really got nothing else but that. (laughs) But fascinating little documentary. Really enjoyed watching this. So much good music in it. Just like all the stuff that you just had no idea where this came from watching these. I mean, look at this picture here, Brian does. That's the backup band. These three old white dudes <laughs> for like some of the greatest soul and R&D These are three of the most ever. influential people in music. Yeah, they are. And, and you're like, what? Really? <laughs> the guy in the middle kind of looks like my granddad. <laughs> they went on tour with traffic for at one point for God's sakes, wow. you know, uh, it's, it's really good. And it really, it solidifies it that you're seeing Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, who are not the easiest people in the world to get for documentaries, go on at length in multiple sequences, just praising to no end how great this place was and everyone involved with it, saying some of the, the best hits they ever did during that period were because of making a point of going to record at Muscle Shoals. It's also a stack of additional scenes and interviews, including a reunion between Rick Hall and the Swampers, who, like I said, at one point, you know, basically had an acrimonious division, mm-hmm. but it's sort of like the first time they've gotten together and played again since then, and they record it, which is it's really cool. a great cool. fucking word, by the way. Acrimonious. Yeah, it is a good one. Wow. Uh, two commentaries, a trailer. It's a good package, and I for music lovers out there, this is one you do not want to miss. Very cool. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to check this out. Yeah, you'd like it the most, baby. <laughs> An Elvis man should love it. Uh, moving on to another documentary this week is Narco Cultura, which actually played Fantastic Fest last year. It did. That's where I saw it. Uh, I actually saw it... Leading up to this show. So, uh, you know, one of the crazy things about the way we end up covering festivals is I don't get to see a lot of movies. <laughs> it's insane. 
Anywho, uh, so I caught up on Narco Cultura. Wow. Um, what a terrifying documentary. Yeah. Who knew that this was a reality? Well, I mean, you watch... Okay, basically, let me explain to you. I can explain really easily to you guys what this is about. You remember that, that point in Breaking Bad where you'd have those two mariachis singing a song about Heisenberg, and you thought to yourself... Why did they open this episode that way? That's really weird. That's that's bizarre. Well, they're paying reference to the fact that there is this thing called, you know, narco culture or drug culture. Basically, these singers who write Nar- songs, narco corridos. Oh, narco corridos who they write songs about being drug dealers. They write these very kind of bouncy, uh, you know, uh, catchy little tunes about being about cutting someone's head off and like our gang runs in, we have bulletproof vests and where there will be a river of blood. But the, it's such a weird juxtaposition because it sounds like the kind of music, you know, it, it sounds like mariachi music. It's very like, it's very loud. It's very, you know, joyous. And then you listen to the lyrics and you're like, what the fuck? It's got an accordion. Yeah. Uh, now this would be just a quaint little, wow, isn't that a weird little corner of our, our, you know, the world civilization? If it wasn't for the fact the movie makes clear, this is not a small part of the culture of Mexico. No. This is the culture of Mexico. It yeah. makes it extremely clear how big this is. These guys who themselves get off on their relations uh, and friendships with these huge drug running gangsters. Yeah. And on the other side, these drug running gang- gangsters who are paying these guys to write songs songs about their infamous to basically immortalize them to immortalize them and it goes on from there i mean at one point they take a look at a gangster cemetery which is like looking at a series of like like they they look like just slightly smaller versions of elaborate tasteless rich guy houses in mexico yeah (laughs) you know i mean they're huge uh looking talking to like groups of like high school girls who are like i would do anything to uh uh, be able to date one of these guys that would be you know it's it's startling and it raises very interesting questions that, you know, that we, that you just don't want, you don't want raised, quite frankly, to some degree, but you have to after seeing this about the relationship between, you know, entertainment and darker entertainment and how that affects people. Yeah. Uh, I found this movie incredibly frightening to watch. Well, and there's, I think there's a very apt comparison made at one point during the movie between this and gangster rap because, because it's, it's another thing where, it's all about drawing from experiences. I mean, most music is about drawing from personal experiences. And when your personal experiences happen to be rooted in, you know, uh, you know, legal activities and violent, uh, existences, then, you know, that's the kind of music that you get. And I'm not making any judgments. I'm saying that that's, that's what happens when you, when you live in this world and then you write music about what you know, this is what you write about. So I thought that comparison to, to gangster rap was actually very apt because it's like gangster rap is also about, it's also people who this is what they know. This is the life that they live. This is what they know, putting that into music. Yeah. The difference being a lot of gangster rappers do that as a way to try and get out of that situation. Sure. Whereas nar- <laughs> the narco music is about trying to immortalize and, and make yourself basically a drug god. It's a celebration of that culture, to be yeah. sure. Um Although I'm not entirely sure that's not true of gangster rap as well, because both this and these narco the, the corridors they are not themselves usually the people they're writing the songs that, about. That's true. They're but, also but, sort of writing songs that seem to, from the outside, be just celebrating the culture. Right. But the thing is, like, you write a song about one of the cartel leaders in Mexico. That cartel leader is going to remain a cartel leader till the day they die. Sure. 
Jay Z does not still run cocaine. No, no, no. That's, that, very that's true. the difference. I think. <laughs> no, I agreed, and I certainly am not trying to to like say, oh, well, there should be like a bans put on creativity or no. I'm not trying to say any any of that whatsoever. But I'm it saying is. It is that terrifying. We need to stop refusing to admit there's not a correlation between like uh violence and and behavior with those who view violence the answer is not banning it clearly we live in a free country and hey that's one of the downsides but there should be more responsibility laid upon artists and this is like the worst case scenario going on right now in mexico an examination of it it follows both a police officer whose whole job it is to deal with this drug culture who's just quite frankly burnt out and exhausted by the whole thing you know i mean just exactly Aspirated by He's probably it. tired from having to go to all those funerals of his colleagues. Yeah, they were showing like a list of everyone he graduated from police academy with, and it like over half of them are dead. It's insane. And like it, the, just the impunity with which these these gangsters murder police off federal police officers. Yeah. Uh, what and the fuck? then the other half is the leader of one of these bands who we get a surprisingly in-depth and insider look at his world of him de- making deals with gangsters, taking money for the songs, and just oh man, it's it's really frightening. In fact, this is the movie I would say make a great companion piece with the act of killing, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, because a, it's, it's a very complex look at a very dark world. And and people who should be condemned and ashamed of the things they've done, proud of them. Like, in, you know, in the case of the act of killing, like, they're recreating their crimes and talking, you know, like, they're reminiscing about it, like, with, you know, with these rose-colored glasses – and in Narco Cultura, they're having songs written about that. Like, they're paying people to write songs about the heinous shit that they do. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. And the other thing that was really, I mean, maybe this is something I should have known. And maybe this is one of those, like, ignorant American things. But I didn't realize just how high the murder rate is in some of the more gang-ridden areas of Mexico. And it's funny. They show the number of murders per year. And they showed the first year that the quote-unquote war on drugs was started. And then every year since then, they showed the death toll going up and up and up. And it's like since they started, quote unquote, cracking down on drugs in oh, Mexico. Yeah. No, no, no. The, the drug war in and of itself is what funds these people, you know, this this crime in the first place. Right. You know, there has to be something has to be illegal for criminals to make money off it. We wouldn't have a there wouldn't have been a mafia in America if it wasn't for prohibition. prohibition. Sure. <laughs> sure. And this is I'm sorry to say it. You can get mad out there all you want. Say that's not true. We need to keep. Dr-. Look, it's true. This there is a direct correlation. There is no mistaking the fact that the reason there's so much crime with drugs is because there's such a harsh shutdown on it, too. If it's hard to get, it's that much more valuable. You, you create. Create scarcity, you create desperation. Desperation creates violence. Yeah, exactly. Desperation partnered with, you know, compensation creates violence. Yeah, I'm afraid that, like, the way we've gone about trying to keep people from using drugs is not the way to go, but I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we should make that very clear. Like, we don't know what the answer is. Yeah, but it's not the way we've been doing it. No, and especially, I mean, like, you can, you can, in this country, I mean, you look at the marijuana, I know marijuana and cocaine are two completely different things, but I mean... You look at the way they treat, you know, somebody with an ounce of marijuana as, you know, being the same type of criminal as a child molester or, or whatever, and it's just – it's like, guys, for fuck's sake, there's a reason two states have already made it legal. Yeah. The ball is already rolling. Like, we're we're getting over this shit. Well, and there's – believe it or not, a lot of people in Mexico who are making a huge amount of money off of transporting marijuana here. If that's not an issue – if that's not something that's going on here, it will, in fact – if, like, that, there's not money to be made off it, guess what? It is going to, in fact, cut down on the amount of money the drug cartels have. Yeah. <laughs> just saying. True. Uh, and, and in that case, I do say the answer is to legalize marijuana. I'm just saying. Yeah. It's, and it's funny because I don't even like, 
I, I'm not even like a, uh, what do you call it? A, uh, not habitual. That's not the right word, but, uh, what's the difference between it's, it's the opposite of medicinal use. Uh, casual use. Ca- there's, there's, I can't believe, oh my God, that I'm forgetting the word people are yelling at the, anyway, I don't use, I don't use marijuana. So my views on it getting legalized are not a personal like interest in being able to use it. Uh, recreationally, which is the oh. word I couldn't think of. Recreationally. It's go use. Harrison Fordley. Yeah, Harrison Fordley. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I don't care about using marijuana. I just want all this other bullshit to stop. I want prisons to stop having to be filled up with a quota of people who have an ounce of marijuana so they let people out on bail who have committed much more violent crimes. But I don't give a shit about that. But let's go to get away from, you know, the where this conversation ended up taking us. <laughs> a tangent. <laughs> a bit of a tangent. Sorry, it's a, it's a current issue and it's easy to get distracted there from the, onto that sort of thing. Ultimately, I think you're going to find narcoculture a fascinating and frightening look at this culture that everybody should really see and it will prompt a awful lot of discussion about yeah. the world today. Yeah, it's it's pretty terrifying. Well, moving on from narcoculture, we're going to talk about the 300 Spartans, Rise of an Empire? No, no, uh, but sort of. Uh, sort in of? fact, Frank Miller, who, of course, wrote the original graphic novel of 300 uh, that was later turned into a movie overseen by him, has cited this movie that came out in 1962 from Cinemascope as his influence. This is the reason he did it. He saw not this the m- actual Battle of Thermopylae. But this <laughs> no, movie. no, he was not that old. He looks like <laughs> it now, and he acts like it, that's for sure. <laughs> acts like the oldest racist Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is the original film about 300, about the Battle of Thermopylae, about uh, King Leonidas uh, and the, uh, Themistocles. I'm always not sure I'm saying that right. And <laughs> You're not. Xerxes and all those people. In fact, this is there's little touches in the way that this is actually sort of one film that has this that combines both 300 and 300 Rise of an Empire characters together, even though it is most certainly focused on, you know, that the the battle through the pass of the 300 Spartans. It, right. it mentions the sea battle, and you get to see Thermostocles. He's a character in it, but it's not really about that. Now, all that being said, I, I'm, you know, I mean, I understand why people like 300 movies as much as they do. In fact, I don't hate them. They're all right. I can watch them and get a certain amount of enjoyment out of them. It's pure, unadulterated testosterone and and visual eye candy. Fair enough. Grand Guignol stuff. Yeah, Grand Guignol style. And I... I enjoy it for what it's worth. This is not that. <laughs> for one thing, it was made in 1962, and nobody was filming on green screens, generally speaking, at least not to that degree. Uh, the second thing is, it's over an hour into this film before anybody, uh, before the, the Spartans and the Persians even meet in the pass. But there's about an hour after that of them continuing to go through the battle. So you do have a certain amount of action. There's just an awful a lot of... There's an awful lot of just people talking about the battle ahead of time. It's a very talky, talky, talky film. And it's not helped by the addition of a subplot featuring, uh, this guy who's the son of a dude that might, that they think might be a traitor to Sparta, but we know isn't. And he's in love with this girl. And then they, he wants to ask for permission to marry her, but then they're like, no, dude, your, your dad's a douche. So you're a douche. So you can't be one of the fighting Spartans. And he decides to sneak off to try and like fight with them anyway to prove him his name. Uh, and it's a really irritating romantic subplot that's completely unnecessary in this film, but kind of seems. I mean, it, it, given the era, it kind of makes oh, sense yeah. that it's included. No, everything in here, given the era, makes sense it's included. It just doesn't necessarily make this a good film. In fact, there's not a lot in the way of good acting here either, especially Richard Egan, who was a workmanlike 
performer, to be sure, who plays King Leonidas. Uh, there's points that you really do. You just keep expecting the robots from Mystery Science Theater to say something. <laughs> acting is so poor and it's just plain silly at points. But once it actually gets into the, the battles itself, it actually becomes pretty darn enjoyable from that point on. Um, you know, reasonably big, but not huge scoped for this type of movie at the time. I mean, I'm sure this was even at the time considered to be somewhat of a B film. Um, this, and like I said, it's it's hard watching some of the performances in here. It really is. Only Ralph Richardson as Themistocles really seems to have his shit together, and he's not in it that much. Hmm. But I I think that if you like the three hundred films, you're going to find this actually interesting. I mean, don't be prepared for that level of like you know just constantly moving stuff and violence. But you're going to see how closely like those movies actually take from the the real story, which this surprisingly cleaves pretty closely to what supposedly actually happened. Interesting note as well. And I just want to correct Bo, who is not here, who claimed that the uh, Spartans did not in fact wear body armor of any kind. I looked that up through multiple sites and he's completely wrong. They wow. wore full chest armor and leather skirts and everything. Uh, I don't know where he got that from, but that is not true. I'm at glad all. that one hadn't been eaten at you for a while. No, I mean, I didn't know when he said it, I had no idea, but then I watched this and they're all wearing full body armor and I was like which is it so I went and made a point of looking it up I was like okay I've seen like five different like information encyclopedia type sites specifically addressing this issue and saying yes they did in fact wear full armor you heard it here last <laughs> because it took place thousands of years ago so in other words the, the chestiness of the 300 films is entirely gratuitous <laughs> big shocker there good to know <laughs> good, good to know aren't you glad that I found that out for you man I, I feel like my life would have been less complete well, without that knowledge. I hate the idea that someone is defending the 300 movies to somebody else somewhere in a discussion who likes someone they don't by saying, no, no, I've, I've definitely heard that it's true that they actually did dress that way. Sorry, dude, you don't have that one. I heard that it, uh, at one point you spent way too much time looking up whether or not the ancient Grecian army did or did not wear body armor so that you could win an argument about the movie 300. So was your talk about marijuana legalization earlier only because you're a pot calling me black? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I yes, bought that full was. circle. Yeah, you did. I like that a lot. <laughs> well, that was the 300 Spartans apparently fully clad but devoid of slow motion. So we are going to move Although on. Although it is slow moving. It is slow moving. <laughs> as is our next film, Mr. Nobody. Uh, okay, so I'm guessing you didn't care for Mr. Nobody. I did not care for Mr. Nobody, but even you, who did like it, warned me before I watched it. You know, it's pretty slow. It's it's pretty long. So it's two and a half hour, over two and a half hours long. And certainly, like, I made me even more curious when a fan got sent me an angry message, like, "I can't believe that you recommended Mr. Nobody to me. I hated that movie. Uh, it was so bad. I was like, I have not seen Mr. Nobody when he sent me this. I haven't seen it, so I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, no, you did back on uh, the you and Corey show, The Daily Spill. I'm like, uh, no. You saw us talk about that the trailer looked cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, internet. <laughs> However, all that being said, I'm actually, now that I've seen it, a gigantic fan of the film Mr. Nobody. And it is not for everyone. It is not. In fact, it is more of a, it's a, more of a puzzle film, uh, art, God, I don't want to say art piece in comparison, but it's like in its own way, it's a tree of life that actually has stuff happening in it because it is the story of a life or of multiple lives. And it's a yeah. story of about living. And there's a reason. I was going to say, I would think Cloud Atlas would be the better exemplar. Well, ultimately when the feeling of this thing with Cloud Atlas, where it comes, you come out of it with like 
this is super high concept, very ambitious uh, yep. science fiction yep. that doesn't quite get what its target is, uh, certainly. And for some people, it's going to miss it entirely because, like I said, it's not a strict narrative on any spec, any any imagination. It follows the, in the year two thousand ninety-two, Nemo Nobody, who is played by Jared Leto. In fact, this was the last film he did before he went into retirement for a couple of years and played uh, one. You know, got uh, in Dallas Buyers in Club. Dallas Buyers Club. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah, this film came out a while ago, only uh, in 2009, and only now is getting released here. Uh, when we first see Nemo, no- nobody's 118 years old. It's the the some point in the in an advanced science fiction future. Everyone else has humanity has discovered immortality. They don't they don't age anymore, and he is the last mortal person on Earth who's dying. And uh, basically, a, 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 a reporter manages to sneak into his room and say, "Look, I just want to get your story." And he proceeds to, in um, sort of a jumbled series of flashbacks, reveal his whole story, which are three plus lifetimes that he lived that all seemed to narrow back at a single point uh, in his life when if he had made a slight, a different decision, there would have been a completely turn, different turnout as well as three different women that in these three different realities he ended up with. One is Sarah Polly, who plays Elise, who has, who is bipolar and is as gorgeous as Sarah Polly is. It's like that nightmare reality. <laughs> You're like, Oh God, please don't let that happen to me. <laughs> uh, Diane Kruger as Anna, who is, uh, played by, uh, Juno, Te- Juno, Juno Temple when she's younger. And honestly, I thought the high point of this film was the young love between the teenage Nemo and her. It's really, it really captures what that in- incredibly excited passion is like. Sure. When you're like 15 years old and you just discover the first woman you decide is going to be the woman you'll love for the rest of your life. Uh, and in here, she's, it seems clear right from the beginning that she's like the one he should be with. And then Lynn Dan, Dan Pham, who is Janine, who is a, uh, Asian woman who plays that, who he ends up with in one reality, basically where he, he gives up too easily chasing after Sarah Poli's character and, uh, ends up with her who's extremely wealthy, but he just doesn't have any real feelings for her. And I found this fascinating the way it started showing all these different possible realities, the way that the realities overlap on each other with hallucinations and dreams. Um, I, I thought, thought the cinematography was just gorgeous. I thought the effects were innovative and different. And, you know, I can see just as easily how, like, it won all the awards it did, which it did. It won a stack of awards uh, all, all over the world, as much as it also won Worst Film Awards as well. <laughs> this is a totally, totally love it and want to keep coming back to it type film or absolutely hate it and be baffled why no, why anybody would want to watch it in the first place. And then there's me, who was just kind of meh. meh. I was just kind of cold on it. Like, it, I, I get what it was trying to do. I just felt like it was it was one of those reach outseating the grasp kind of things where it was like it had in its mind that it was really pushing these big ideas and, and, and getting to, you know, the marrow of life and all that. And, and by the end I was just like, yeah, but I don't, I don't really think you achieved. I don't really think you, I, I don't really think you succeeded in, in hitting the targets that you think that you did. And if, or it definitely didn't hit those targets for me. Uh, but I can see what they were aiming at. There are things about it that I do like, but overall, I just felt like there uh, there's more style here than there is substance, which is something that that happens from time to time. And I don't know. That's that's kind of where I. But I wouldn't say I hated it. Like I, I certainly didn't hate it, and I don't I don't 
really quite understand how it would win worst film awards unless those people have seen just very, very few films. But you know how angry this type of film makes some people. Yeah. You know, where they're like, I don't understand why I should be forced to sit through something that isn't going to tell me a normal story at all, that, well, it, that asks me to make my own decisions, you know. Yeah, I mean, I it... I didn't have a, I mean, I'm, I'm, I know you're not referring to me when you no, say those people, but I, for me personally, like, I didn't have a problem with the narrative structure. I had more of a problem with some moments that I felt were a little too navel gazy, a little too just kind of in love with what they were doing without it really being rooted back to being rooted, being an effective way to tell the story that they were trying to tell. I felt like there were moments that seemed like, indulgences more than they seem like anything that really ultimately served the story. But again, um, I don't know. I, I am not, I am not a huge detractor of the film. It just didn't, it, it didn't, uh, didn't speak to me. I mean, my only real problem with it was I felt the very, very end and the, is something where it was like, well, we didn't really know quite what to do here. And it's, it's one of those, like, whereas everything else has that feeling like, okay, this is the story about why it's important to be alive and living and getting the most you can from life, but just living in and of itself, whatever path you take is important. At the end, it's kind of a silly sci-fi twist that ends up kind of diffusing the rest of the film as at least that's what I thought anyway, Mm -hmm. but only the very, very, very end, a little sort of stab, little blur, uh, like stinger at the end, really. Um, overall, I, I did like a lot of the things that it hit, but it is, it is, it's an ambient way of storytelling. It's a way that asks you to apply these things to your own life and the own things you felt and, and experienced. And, and for me, that actually was extremely effective. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I thought that like the indulgences, as you say, which are indeed indulgences through one viewpoint to me were like, visual beautiful visual metaphor that really really that was appropriate for this kind of story yeah. if it had been more of a strict narrative they would have felt gratuitous Here, yeah but they felt normal yeah but you keep coming back to that but i don't think the problems i have have nothing to do with the fact that it's not a traditional narrative i again like for example i thought its future was one of the most ridiculous things i had ever it looked like the south park future where Cartman <laughs> freezes himself to get an xbox quicker it does kind of yeah. it's like i'm there's like people walking around in bubbles for fuck's sake it's like what is what are you just don't do that john like, travolta yeah right john travolta's <laughs> like not being able to pronounce the movie he's in walking around in a bubble <laughs> very strange very strange but yeah a movie that you know we can recommend that you watch because it's a divisive film and it'll be it'll be fun for you to figure out on which side of the fence you end up landing and if it's one of those movies that you come out of going i was interested but i don't really know what goes on the making of Mr. Nobody, which comes on this about a 45-minute piece, actually does help to articulate a lot of what they were trying to say in this movie and helped. I, I actually watched the whole thing and I found it fascinating. And it, on, you know, in some ways it's going, well, this is what the director was thinking for himself. But on the other hand, he also intended for you to get put into it what you came in with, too. And I thought that was effective. Uh, there's some deleted scenes. Uh, there's a promotional piece, which looks clips of the film with a few inter- interview segments. Uh, it's not the world's best put together set of extras, but like I said, that one making Mr. Nobody is a pretty good piece. I myself did, in fact, enjoy the hell out of this. Right on. So, whatever. Brian's probably right, but I enjoyed it. Uh, there is no right or wrong. I'm the guy who likes Spider-Man three still, so we, we just you know, put I, that in your pipe and smoke it. Honestly, though, I think that's something that you know all of us in the internet film community should get away from is the idea that there is a right and wrong because it's. It's inherent in the fact that it's an art form, and yet every fucking day you see people arguing about this stuff, and it's like, there's no right or wrong yeah. when it comes to film appreciation. Just like there's no right or wrong with, what do you think about that painting? Yeah, there's no right or wrong. It's a fucking painting. It's a piece of art. Anyway. 
That's a little, that's a little diatribe from Brian. What about movie 43? About movie... Well, that's a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> that's what I thought. Moving on to Breathless. <sighs> which is kind of <sighs> how I feel right now, honestly. Every time I exercise for more than 10 seconds. <laughs> Hell, sometimes just when I get out of bed. <laughs> yeah. This is the Criterion release this week, this, I believe. This is the Criterion release, and it is going to be my own personal pick of the week. Of the uh, week. I was surprised how much I loved this 1960 French film directed by Jean-Luc Godard. As much as Godard has traditionally been the only one to come out of the French New Wave that I've really got enjoyed very much, this was one of the defining works of the French New Wave, which, like I said, I'm not always the biggest fan of. And I had certainly heard from other people who didn't like the same films I didn't like that you're not going to like Breathless either. Well... I really loved it, and I think that I, I can see why it affects a lot of people the way that it did, but because it's it's vague, it's hard to connect with the characters as real people, everyone's more of a symbol than they are a real person, but ultimately it was Godard's sort of message about film itself. I mean, it's one of those movies that's about movies. It's specifically about noir, and I found it fascinating. One of my favorite things about this being the soundtrack by Marshall uh, Solal, who, uh, which is was so good, I, I actually bought it right after I finished watching the movie. Wow. Uh, but the story follows Jean-Paul Belmondo, who went on to be one of the most celebrated actors in France. In fact, he was already pretty big before this, who plays Michel, who's a petty criminal who imagines he's Humphrey Bogart or any given American film, film noir type star who is regularly goes around stealing cars and committing petty crimes and just kind of in his own way being kind of a badass. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, one time after he steals a car, he shoot, ends up having to shoot a policeman who's followed him because he ain't going to jail. That's just not how that's going to go. Uh, but he's got no money. He's on the run from the police. He turns to his American girlfriend, played by the absolutely, just iconically gorgeous Jean Seberg. I mean, she is the defining hot woman with short, very short hair for me after this forever. Yeah. <laughs> In a striped sweater. <laughs> a very specific fetish. After this movie, I will always have that fetish. I, I, have, I have literally changed all my porn lengths now. <laughs> uh, she's a student and an aspiring journalist who sells the New York Herald Tribune in Paris. She's a little naive, but not completely. She doesn't know. She knows he's kind of a bad boy, but she's attracted to that quality of him being a bad boy and takes him into her apartment and her life as he's regularly trying to both get her in bed and uh, and call in alone so they can leave and go to Italy together. Something she's not sure she wants to do as well. Uh, a lot of this movie is very talky in the sense of like they're they're just hanging out together at one point for 20 plus minutes in her apartment talking about life and various existential themes. Once again, not going to be everybody's cup of tea, certainly. And that was even even for me was the slowest part of this movie. But ultimately, I did find this really interesting. It was the, really sort of the most innovative use at this point of uh, jump cuts that anybody had ever done yet, using them within conversations themselves. There's so much to think about and analyze and take a look at this movie that is more fun to watch than it's not. Once again, helped along a lot by this just dynamic score by Marshall Solo that really gives you that feeling of like un you know, upcoming danger and intrigue, even though nothing that dangerous or intriguing actually happens during most of the film. Uh, this is considered by a lot of critics to be one of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah, none of those fucking critics asked me. I, yeah, I don't agree with that. I don't think this is one of the greatest. I'm not saying that at all. I do think it's certainly one of the most influential movies ever made. It, I mean, just Tarantino alone stole so much. Hell, he stole almost his whole career from this in some ways, in the sense that almost everything in Breathless is borrowed from 
another well, obscure noir film. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's like French French New Wave is as obsessed with American genre film as Quentin Tarantino is. Oh yeah, completely. And not only that, but you know, in The Outsiders, for example, there's a scene where the entire movie stops to have a, an unnecessary dance sequence. Remind you of anything that may have happened in Jackrabbit Slims and Pulp Fiction? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you'll see a lot of that in those type of films. But this was one of the first ones to do that, too. Yeah. And I still think it did it very well. It has a lot to do with how just beautiful and, and just cool the lead actors are in this thing. And the best part about this being the Criterion Edition, this is actually, I believe, the second Blu-ray release of it. They're now re-releasing all their Blu-rays so that they have DVDs in them as well. Yeah, they're 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 doing that because apparently it cuts down on the number of factories they have to have. Yeah, exactly. Which I don't understand, really, but okay. Uh, but there's a just startling amount of bonus features in this, including a gorgeous 80-page book in it. There are interviews with uh, two interviews with Jean-Luc Godard, interview with Belmondo, Seberg, Jean-Pierre Melville, uh, interviews with uh, uh, Coutard and uh, Raoul Coutard and uh, a cinephile Pierre Recient, who, who was the assistant director on Breathless. They talk about specific details. There's uh, 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 the documentary filmmaker D.A. Pennebaker talks about Godard's description of his film is a documentary about John Paul Belmondo and Gene Seberg, which I found one of the most fascinating extras on here is his look of like, for whatever reason, Godard always looked at, talked to his film somewhat tongue in cheek as being documentaries, not narratives. Uh, and only in the sense that like what they were about were, really talking about who these people were in some way. There's, you know, it goes on as breathless as criticism because Jean-Luc Godard often talked about how film critics and filmmakers were actually the exact same thing, that there was no real difference between them, which I like that. So now I'm going to put on my resume filmmaker. Yeah, uh, but it's it really convenient. It took a look at his, his career as how he considered his films to be criticism of films in and of themselves and specifically breathless. Uh, there's a long documentary, uh, which uh, they talk about a lot of people interviewed in, who are interviewed with, who had something to do with Breathless. I mean, it goes on and on and on with a list of extras from here. This is a package well worth your money for what I found to be a really beautiful film that I know I'm going to revisit. And it's more fun to revisit with documentaries like this that really go through it and explain in the context of the times why this was viewed as important and as, as meaningful as it was. Well, I'm glad this is getting a Criterion release, and I'm glad that you got so much out of it and you spoke on this movie until you were yourself Breathless. <gasps> But if I could just get in slight word edgewise, uh, the ba rebuttal, <laughs> Beze Nouvelle Vague, which is French for fuck new wave. Uh, I, I know it's, it's, I'm very much the minority on this, but I have this feeling that, especially with Jean-Luc Godard, that he has his tet so far up his derriere that he can't see the light of jour. <laughs> so that is my person. I just, I can't, I can't get into characters that are so uninteresting when they are also so, kind of despicable in a lot of ways. I just, I don't know. Like, that's always been, and again, that's not a, that's not even a total criticism of Breathless. I mean, that to me is like kind of my problem with all the French New Wave films I've seen. And I've tried several, it's like salad. It's like eating salad. Like, I tried and tried and tried for years. couldn't do it. Uh, and finally, I learned to eat salad using spinach. So when I find whatever that French New Wave film that is the spinach of French New Wave, <laughs> maybe I will have a different opinion. But I've tried several times to watch these films, to watch this, to watch Band of Outsiders, and it's just like, no, I can't. This, this is not for me. This does not speak to me on any level. That being said, I recognize 100% the uh, significance of the genre, uh, how influential it was, and how important to film history it is. So once again, Criterion, 
I don't fault them for putting this out in the first place on DVD and now on Blu-ray. It That's makes total say, sense to me. Some Mark Dan's going, hey, Brian, watch I, I, it. I, I can be completely deferential toward this genre. I really can because I understand its importance. But if I have to sit through another goddamn French New Wave film, uh, my whole world's going to go black and white and red from the, the brains on the wall. <laughs> you know, I must admit that when I first discovered the New Wave, I was very disappointed that there it wasn't just movies about Joy Division and bands like that. I was like, <laughs> we're like, oh, wow, really? The French are into I love New Wave. You are oh, such a music damn it. <laughs> Well, from there, why don't we talk about Legit Season 1? No, no, it's it's just legit. Oh, legit Season 1. Too legit to quit. Hey, or, hey. Or, or something hip hoppy like that. I don't know. Is that hip hoppy? I don't even know. No, it's hammer. Ugh. Is it? Well, that's hip hoppy. Have Hammer hip, said it? Hip hop e ish. Hip hop esque. Hip hop reminiscent. You can't say hip hoppy. No, no, don't. Just, just what if it's got about... more music? Can it be hip hop poppy? Oh, good god. No. Uh, hip hop fans, I apologize for Chris. What if it goes back to like classic music roots and it's hip hopera? The ghost of Tupac is going to beat the ever-living shit out of you. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, he's not really dead, but if he were dead, his ghost would beat the shit out of you. I'm sorry. I just wanted to give a little bit of a hip-hop ad there. Oh, but, <laughs> you know... I wish you would lose your voice. <laughs> yeah, it'll come. <laughs> uh, this is the 2013 TV series that just got picked up again for a second series, so that is awesome. Uh, that was on the FX channel, although it is one of those ones that got moved to FX's new channel, FXX. Which means it's doubly dirty. Yeah, it's super filthy. <laughs> uh, and this star is com- Australian comedian Jim Jeffries, and it is indeed another one of those shows that are becoming, you know, almost par for the course now. Uh, you know, see, it's so weird. Remember when every sitcom that was coming out was about uh, a comedian, a stand-up comedian and their family? Right. Yeah. Well, that's happening again, except now it's in the new style. It's not the old style sitcom, and now it's in the style of Louie, where everybody wants to do this very irascible lead character who's kind of broken inside, but still really funny, uh, who deals with the people in their life and meets various celebrities and yada yada. And, and indeed, Legit is another one of those shows. But so far, I really like those shows. <laughs> uh, I'm enjoying what they do with it, and Legit is no exception. And this takes a slightly different, interesting turn on it. Um, he lives with uh, his his best friend and roommate. It's hard to believe they were ever friends. Uh, Steve Nugent, uh, who's played by Dan uh, Bacadal. I wasn't familiar with him. And I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, if that's the character, I, I haven't watched much of Legit, but if that's the character I'm thinking of, that guy is also on Veep. And he's, yeah, he's great on Veep as sort of this uh, okay. yeah, antagonistic right. senator. Yeah, Congressman Furlong. Yeah, right? yeah, Congressman Furlong. Uh, and uh, Steve Nugent has a younger brother named Billy, played by the great DJ Qualls. I love DJ Qualls. I know not he's not everybody's cup of tea, but I always really enjoy him. He's a great reoccurring character on Supernatural. Uh, he plays his brother who's got muscular dystrophy, and like in kind of the end stages, he's... He's paralyzed. He can only move pretty much like his hands and not his arms or anything else. He's stuck in that chair. And his overprotective mother, uh, uh, played by Mindy Sterling, doesn't want him to have any fun at all or do anything except not die as long as possible in a hospital. Uh, but he begs Jim Jeffries, who he knows is like the, you know, he's like, as he says at one point, because you were the only guy I knew who probably could or would get me a hooker. Because <laughs> he's never actually been laid before. So in the first episode, they set out to Vegas together on a road trip to go get him finally laid. And this 
ends up in, being in a situation because they get in trouble at one point for breaking him out of the, the hospital where he's not allowed back there. They don't know what to do with him. He can't stay with his mother and father. Father played very humorously about halfway through the season, season by John Ratzenberger from Cheers and every Pixar film. Yes. Uh, every single one of them. <laughs> Because the mother is a hoarder, her and it's unsafe for him to live there. <laughs> uh, so they're they basically say, "Look, we'll take him in. He'll live with us," which horrifies her. But there's really not another choice. Uh, eventually, they end up. She talks him into basically letting him have a nurse, which is a very harsh, large black woman named Ramona, played by Sonia Eddy, who lives at them with the house. Who who actually becomes a really likable character as the show goes on, as they start all. You know, she's the, the matriarch of their shitty little apartment, but ultimately is easy to get along with if you catch her in the right mood, <laughs> which is which is stoned, just like it is with the rest of them. Sure. What makes this show work more than anything, and some people bitched about this, uh, is that it actually does have a heart. If you talk to people who are dealing with, like, being – who who you can't miss because of their, uh, you know, handicap, whatever it might be – they don't really tend to like being fawned over or treated like they're a piece of glass, even if they are techn even if that's technically true. They'd rather sometimes just go ahead and die than be treated like they're always on the edge of death. And in this case, that's true of DJ Qual's character, Billy. Right. He just wants to try and live as normal a life as possible, you know, until the inevitable happens. And the great thing about uh, Jim Jeffries here is like he's got just the guy to be insensitive enough to treat him like that. Right, uh, to stop handling him with kit gloves. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it's even though the film, this whole series, it's I mean, it's very dirty minded. There's lots of like very base level sex and, and poop and what have you jokes in it, uh, where even though Jim Jeffries is, you know, he, he's. I wouldn't call him a misanthrope. He doesn't hate people, but he is incapable of keeping his mouth shut about things he does dislike about people when they happen to be right there, even in terms of things that are easily interpreted as being racist or sexist or what have you. But they're really funny sequences in here. So those with a more sensitive temperament aren't going to be real happy about this film. <laughs> but at the same time, those who just want something more like Marin, where he's just kind of constantly a misanthrope and mean-spirited – are going to be a little pissed off that the film that this does occasionally, the series does occasionally turn to more sensitive moments as it's really, you know, kind of about like, wow, this is actually kind of touching what these guys do for this guy. There's even <laughs> one of the funniest sequences in this whole thing is where, uh, that, like, that I saw. I'm only about three quarters of the way through the season right now, but, um, Jim Jeffries has set up a, uh, a video chat thing so he can meet a girl maybe online so he can try to have like at least a semblance of a real relationship with right. someone, being able to talk to another girl. So he's been forming this thing with this girl and it's got to the point where she's, you know, after several dates online, she's taking her clothes off and he's, and she's like, okay, I want to see you, see your dick. And apparently in here, he's got like an almost 10 inch dick. It's, you know, <laughs> hard to believe from DJ Qualls, but you know, we don't actually <laughs> see it. So whatever. Uh, and so like, she's like, wow, that's huge. It's like, okay, now I want to see you masturbate. Of course, which is not actually possible for him. And Jim Jeffries <laughs> gets talked into just, you know, cause it's just the webcam of like reaching his arm in there and like, sort of, like looking the other way and gagging <laughs> as he's jacking him off. <laughs> so the girl could think that this is like they're continuing their relationship. And of course, that's the moment that, uh, the mom walks in. Of course. <laughs> Jesus Christ. This made me laugh out loud several times during the length of it. I'm really glad I got picked up, picked up for a second season. If anything, I'll get a little annoyed with Dan Bacadal, who is 
played to be such a loser as to like, come on, doesn't he have any redeeming qualities? He's just like such an uber nerd. Uh, but it's not, not his fault as an actor. It's just the way he's written. Sure. Um, but there's lots of funny side characters on here. And overall, I definitely say this is a movie or why do I keep saying movie TV series that you are going to want to check out if you like things like Louie and Marin. Well, it's funny. Like I haven't, I've only seen, I think maybe one episode of legit, but from the way you're describing it, it sounds a lot like a weird mashup between Louie and the untouchables. The Untouchables. The Intouchables. That oh, you, the Intouchables. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I was like the Untouchables. Yes. What? They're always going see, after Capone. He's a bad egg. Who they 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 where DJ Calls is falling down the stairs in slow motion like in Battleship Potemkin. His yeah. wheelchair just keeps bouncing <laughs> down the stairs yes. during the big gum fight. Oh, good lord. Well, <laughs> that probably happens in an episode at some point. It probably will. It probably will. Well, that actually brings us to the last title of the show, which is also going to be our giveaway. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Sorry. Okay. I, okay. I lost it there. Are you, uh, you going to be all right? I'll make it. I'll make it. And that movie is Memory of the Dead. Now, this is a film that's actually been making the festival circuit for a while. I actually uh, I actually missed the screening. They, they, It was at uh, Fantasia in 2012, and they moved it into the really small theater, and then it was like I couldn't, I couldn't get into it. But uh, I have seen it now, and oh, boy. This is a wildly imaginative and super inventive horror film. Who saw this one coming? No one. <laughs> Not even Raimi saw this one coming. And let me be clear. It says Memory of the Dead, which makes you think, oh, great, it's another zombie film. It, no. It's not. No. Uh, in fact, I don't know what to describe this as. It, it feels like I do think there's a lot of Raimi influence here. There's but, Raimi influence, yeah. But in the, in the way that it was almost like somebody saw Night of the Demons and said, wow, that's really Raimi influence, but I think we can do it better. And so that's kind of what Memory of the Dead is. It's a it's a film about a group of people who are gathered together uh, by the wife of a man who has recently passed on, and they're there kind of to hear his his like read his will and and this letter that he's kind of written them before he died, kind of a a last remembrance of this guy. Yeah, and unfortunately, as it turns out, there is a darker reason for their for them gathering there because the wife has figured out a way to bring him back from the dead, at least supposedly, as they all discover when suddenly the whole outside world changes and it looks like they're in hell because they pretty much are. Yeah. Uh, apparently, they you know according to her. When he sees the house, it'll be a lighthouse to him, and he'll be able to come there to it, having been recently dead, and he'll be able to be brought back to life, as per his actual wishes. Uh, but what they're not ready for is, in fact, even though they're told initially, as long as you stay inside the house, you'll be fine, that this is not true. That nope. All the dead in their lives, all the people they've wronged their whole life, or, or wronged them, start appearing to them and doing really fucked up horrible shit. <laughs> I mean, wow. I, 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 you know, you can't even, it's not really that you would call this film a gore fest. It's not. But when it does get gory, they always manage to make it to be ways that will just squick you out like you would not believe. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's shit in this movie that I I had to cringe. And I don't cringe a lot during horror movies, but man, there's cringeworthy, uh, you know, like effects and cringeworthy uh, gore effect. Oh, man. Yeah, it's all very well done gore, certainly, yeah. but it it's never to that point where it feels like this is a movie that the focus of it was just to have these gross out moments. No, no, they're actually few and far between. I mean, like, it gets really off the rails toward the end, but toward the beginning, they're very few and far between with the gore moments. And what I like about it, too, is that all these sequences, these horror sequences they are going, because of the nature of them, not let you know not only more about who these characters are as people, like a huge amounts more about who they are as people, but 
why they have the relationship they do to all the other characters right. and to the dead guy right. in person. I mean, that is, is a fascinating structure for a film like this that actually works. Now, it's all played for a certain degree to laugh, for laughs. I mean, it's definitely the whole time winking at you because it's very just I mean, it's extreme in the way that it moves and a lot of the camera work, and it's so brightly colored, and it comes to one of the more entertaining twists I've seen in a horror movie at any time recently. I absolutely agree. That was so fucking cool. Like, that... That that took me from like I kind of like this movie to no I really like this movie. <laughs> you don't get a lot of those anymore. They're usually like uh huh wah wah, and this is one I was like wow I did not see that coming no. from a million miles away. <laughs> 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 Very well done. Uh, a lot of fun. A lot of sex in it as well. This yeah. is not for uh you know those who might have an aversion to boobies because boy there's a lot of dems in here. So it's a Spanish film. So what are you gonna do? But wow I do really really recommend this horror lo- lovers. This is one you're gonna want want to go out of your way for and in fact aren't you lucky if you're one of said horror uh, movie lovers because you have your chance to win it right here and now yes and as you may know we've been doing sort of a a a twitter prompt type giveaway thing and and in the past we've been giving you sort of uh creative like i want you to imagine this and then come up with the best answer for that and that's all well and good and we'll keep doing that but it's it struck me today that we're moving into South by Southwest. Yes, we and are. Part of what Chris and I are going to be doing at South by this year, which is something entirely new for us, is we're going to be there as promoters, not just as film critics, but as promoters for our own site. And we're going to be doing a lot of things. We're hosting a karaoke event here in town on Thursday, a Google Glass karaoke event, which just sounds fucking awesome. Yes. Uh, and, you know, we'll be handing out business cards and stickers and just trying to spread the good word about oneofus.net. So I thought, you know what would be really helpful with that is if you guys pitched in leading up to South by Southwest. So here's what I want you to do. Make sure you're following one of us net on Twitter. But instead of tweeting at us, I want you to just tweet out into the ether. And I want you to tweet something to the effect of, you should be following oneofus.net or oneofus.net is great. You should follow them. And then I want you to hashtag that we are us. And then we'll use that hashtag and we'll go through and we'll pick someone randomly. But we're, this week we're giving you a break. You don't even have to come up with anything creative. All you have to do is tweet out into the, again, don't tweet it at us because then only we see it. Yeah, there's no point. But tweet it out into the universe. Say, hey guys, you should be following oneofus.net. They're awesome. Or any variety on that wording. Yes. You, you should say to your friends, hey, follow at oneofusnet because they're great. And, and then just hashtag that we are us. Like I said, you can come up with however you want to say it. Just make sure that you don't tweet it directly at us, but that you do include the at somewhere in there so people can find us, and then just hashtag it, we are us. Yep, and uh, we will randomly pick one of those uh, those uh, posters, and you will get contacted for winning Memory of the Dead, and then we will say, aren't you lucky? Aren't you lucky, Wade? Let me save you the time, because yes, you are. And you a big are. thank you to Artsploitation Films for providing us a giveaway copy of Memory of the Dead. Yes, I wish they would provide me more just so I could give them out to my friends who've <laughs> never heard of this movie who need to. Right on. Well, that's going to do it for Digital Noise this week. That was fun. It was fun. It was it was a more digestible bite this week. It was. It was indeed the snack-sized. Snacks of the snack size. <laughs> hey, uh, I, I, Chris, I hope you don't mind, but speaking of snack-sized things, uh, the podcast Junk Food Cinema just launched today, so I would like to give a, a little plug there. Uh, it's me and Cargill, who you may remember from the Spill Days, doing a show all about cult and exploitation stuff, and it's the the podcast version of a column I used to write for years 
on Film School Rejects. So first episode's up over there at Film School Rejects. I've been tweeting links like crazy. <laughs> There's no way you could possibly miss it. Uh, but if you like it, please do tell your friends about it. It's just another way for us to kind of spread our influence around the internet. You bastard! I know. I didn't. I didn't want to. I didn't want to <laughs> plug it here. But then I was like, then you said snack size, and I couldn't help but think. I'm gonna about go it. play murder in the dark. <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for this week. For Chris, this is Brian reminding you that no matter how big, no matter how small, from criterion to catastrophe, all releases, we review them all. <laughs> <laughs>